0: Welcome to the Olive Tree Church podcast channel. Whether you are listening in from our beloved Durban, South Africa, or from further away, we trust you feel welcome and included in what God is doing in our community and that you feel inspired by today's message. Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you. It's wonderful to have you join us for uh, a conversation about grace and the way it works in our lives and how we can access it. Um, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to be with you, to share some scripture with you. I am more aware now than ever that to be heard is one of the greatest luxuries, right? No matter what position you stand in, uh, that's just an amazing thing. And so we're so grateful that wherever you are around the world that you're tuning in uh, to have a conversation with us about stuff that really matters. I hope you've had a great week. I hope that wherever you're listening to us from, uh, you've had a wonderful time. I'm so grateful to have been able to finally have a haircut, the uh, the comments, about the Samson locks are starting to threaten my security, uh, I realize, of course, that I'm losing a little bit of brand cachet in the bluff and places like that without the mullet, uh, but it's just a risk worth taking, right? Um, not because I've just been speaking about the bluff, but I've got a question uh, knocking around in my head, which I'd like us to begin this chat with. Have you ever stopped to wonder, what is it that makes humans special? of all the things, all the amazing, glorious, incredible, creative things on earth, what makes us so special? As I say, I'm not just asking about special people because I've been talking about special areas of Durban. Um, but we just assume, maybe it's I suppose, because we're at the top of the food chain, we've, we've got some kind of dominance, we just assume that it makes sense for us all to band together and obliterate this poor, hardworking virus that's just trying to survive, right? I mean, this sounds ridiculous to even say, of course, anything that threatens human life must be opposed. But have you ever stopped to ask yourself why? We all instinctively go, yes, all life is sacred. But have you ever asked yourself why? What is it that makes human life so special? Is it because we can create great art? That might be part of it. Um, But does that mean that if you've got the artistic ability of my son, you're not worth looking after? No, of course not. Is it because we have the ability to be uh, self-aware? Is it our consciousness? Is that what makes us so special? That's a pretty incredible human facet, but is that the thing that makes human life sacred? Is it um, our ability for moral reasoning, the fact that we can be noble, be selfless, be generous, be self-sacrificing? Are any of those the things that make us special, or is it, as I said, just the fact, just the random accident of the fact that we have ended up at the top of the food chain, that we can dominate all other things, that we're the, the, the pinnacle of the pyramid, and that's why we think we are justified in abolishing anything that threatens us. I get that most of you probably don't spend much time at night thinking about such a strange philosophical question, but I ask it because the Bible actually helps us to get a proper, truthful, accurate answer to what is making you so special, what it is that makes me so special, what it is that makes us as a family of mankind on earth so special, so valuable. And the fascinating thing you're going to see is it's actually... It's the fact that we're not the top of the food chain that makes us so valuable. This is what the Bible has to say about why you matter, why you should matter to me, why you matter to God. Let's take a quick whistle stop through scripture to see how God really feels about us. God begins by saying, let's make man in our image, after our likeness, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock of the fields. You're made to look like God. That's a huge part of why you're special. You're not just made to look like him, you're made to bring him great pleasure. You were designed for his glory. We read in Isaiah 43 that everyone who is called by his name, whom he created for his glory, who he formed and made. God is taking responsibility for you and every single human being ever. And he says, I made you to look like me. I made you to give me glory, to glorify me. He doesn't just want you to glorify him in some sort of distant, terrified, headmaster way. He wants intimate relationship with you we can go to the end of the Bible in Revelations 21 and see what we've seen from the very beginning of the Bible. I could read almost the exact same words out of Exodus, Leviticus, every great um, prophet like Ezekiel and Zechariah and so on, who all say that God's, the cry of his heart is that he would make his dwelling among us, walk among us, that I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's quoted again in Hebrews, it's quoted again in Corinthians. Throughout the Bible, there's this like, thread of the heart of God going, I want to be with you guys. I made you to look like me. I made you to glorify me. I made you to want to be with me. And I really want to be with you. And in that relationship, he's then ask, asking that we would start to trust and obey him, that we would have a sense of, of faith in just how good he is. And so we can go to 1 Samuel 15 for an example of this, where he says, what's more pleasing to me, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to my voice, Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Jesus later would say, if you love me, you'll obey me. Like the Father saying, I want you to look like me. I want you to glorify me. I want you to be with me. I want you to trust me. And ultimately, I want you to get to work with me. Remember at the very beginning in Genesis, He created us to look like Him, to then rule over the earth, to work with Him. We mess that whole thing up, and it's almost as though Jesus fixes that when you eventually get to Ephesians 2, verse 10, which says, you're God's workmanship. Other translations would say his masterpiece. Created in you in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. Here's the big idea. Um, The thing that makes you special is that you are special to someone. The thing that makes you valuable, worth something, is that someone worth infinitely more than you has decided that you have value, that you're worth investing in, that you're designed to look like him, to resemble him, to enjoy him, to trust him, to work with him if you want to feel like there's human dignity, if you want to fight for the idea of of the sort of sacredness of life and the fact that humans are special, then ironically, the thing that gives you your specialness is not that you're at the top of the food chain, is that someone else is at the top of the food chain. And he designed you to look like him and to like him. Uh, And He wants to like you and be in relationship with you and be connected to you. That is what makes our species so great. (laughs) That is why it is worth fighting anything that threatens our species. That's why every life on earth matters so much. Okay, so humans are great. Humans are the best. They're also the worst, aren't they? We have fallen so far short. Yeah, we're capable of noble stuff and self-sacrifice. We're capable of looking like God, of being intimate with God, of trusting Him. We're capable of obeying Him and doing glorious things, but... If you've been on social media recently, if you've looked in your own life recently, you might be sympathetic to the goals of the coronavirus. And like, Actually, possibly the worst thing that could have happened to planet Earth is us. And if you've ever caught yourself thinking that, you have admitted that we have fallen a long way short of what we were designed to be. There's a part of your heart that immediately goes, yes, all life is valuable. And there's a part of you, I think, that admits every human is a desperately dangerous thing on planet Earth. We are like a weaponized species. We've fallen a long way short. One of the most interesting ways that this falling short is described, if we're talking about design, right? If you were designed, if you were created, if that's what gives you value, then you get these tragic moments where things fall short of their design, where they get corrupted in some way, where they don't work the way their creator intended them to work. Those tragic moments, I mean, I think of like a a racehorse, a glorious racehorse. Is there anything more impressive than a racehorse in full flight? But when something goes wrong, when it gets broken, if it breaks it, bone, then I mean, heartrendingly, what you know they often do is they just put that horse down straight away. It does not It's not fun to talk about, but there's a the sense of like, if that creature can no longer do what it was designed to do, let's just end its suffering. There's no point. If medicine becomes messed up in some way, if it turns out that it's got a bad side effect, we have to destroy it because we can't dare risk it falling into hands and being used. If a dog, I'm told, gets a taste for blood, I don't know, maybe these are kind of dramatized stories, but you know, There are moments when, when an animal that's supposed to serve, if it goes rogue, we've got, to, we've got to destroy that animal. Like This is no fun to talk about, but you realise that if something has broken its design, if it has rebelled against its creator, it needs to be fixed or it needs to be got rid of. There's no other rational response. So if we're saying that human beings are valuable because we're designed to do something glorious, but in the heart of every human being is a fundamental flaw, that there's, a, there's a bug in the code, Then here's how that gets described in Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, the second half of that verse is really encouraging, so let's just hold that back for one moment. What Isaiah is saying is what we've been describing that instead of recognizing that there is someone else at the pinnacle of the food chain who infused us with this incredible dignity of having his image, who then said, I want to know you. I want to be in a relationship with you. Then I want to give you glorious things to do. I want you to work on my behalf and trust me. Instead of doing that, we've decided, no, we'll be the pinnacle of the food chain. We've gone our own way. We've decided to be the star of our own story. And having gone astray like that, there's a real problem. Something's gone really wrong. And God starts to hint at what his solution to that is. But that's what I'd like us to start to front up to, there's an amazing little line in the most famous hymn ever written, um, Amazing Grace. You've probably heard it sung millions of times. And there's this fascinating line um, that John Newton writes. He was a slave trader, and then Jesus grabs hold of his life, and he changes his whole trajectory. And he says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. And then grace those fears relieved. What's he on about there? What's he talking about? What's he got a glimpse of that causes him to say, there's something about God. As I started to recognize God and the truth about him and me, I became very afraid. You see, the fear of God is supposedly the beginning of all wisdom, Scripture tells us, that there's actually no route towards enjoying God. That doesn't start with being terrified of our position in relation to him. This is no fun to talk about. I'm sure this isn't hugely enjoyable to listen to. Um, But I want you to just engage with this idea for a second. If we were designed for one thing, design implies accountability. It implies that there's a purpose. If we've been corrupted in some way and there is a good, glorious God who can't put up with that, then perhaps the most terrifying thing facing our species right now is not climate change, is not pandemics, is not any other thing that we might think is terrifying right now. Maybe the most problematic circumstance you're facing in your life right now is not whether you'll be able to put food on the table or fix that relational problem or any of the other stuff that is de- definitely important. What if the, the biggest problem you and I have is the fact that we are in the hands of a holy God and we are not holy, that He is terrifying and that the beginning of any relationship with Him starts by saying, like John Newton said, grace caused my heart to fear, but then found a way to relieve those fears. We've sent Ndalo out on a mission on the streets of Durban to try to get a sense from people, this uncomfortable conversation about the anger of God. What do they think about the anger of God? Let's hear what Durbanites have to say. Do you guys believe in a higher power? Do you guys believe in a God? Of course. Yes, there's
1: a higher power, God.
0: I just believe in a force that controls everything or a source of energy that just provides to everyone.
1: Mm. Yes, I do believe in God.
0: And what religion are you?
1: I'm a Hindu.
0: Yeah, I believe in higher power. I believe in God, man.
1: Oh, with all our heart.
0: Do you believe in a higher power? Do you believe in a God?
1: Of course, I do believe in God, but they always say everyone's God's the same, but they just call different names. Uh, yes, I do. Do you believe there's a God? Yes. Okay. Are you a Christian? No, I'm not. Okay, what religion are you? I'm Hindu. Do you believe in God's wrath? No. Why do you say that? Uh, I think everything happens for a reason. Of course, everybody gets angry. If I'm created in his image and I get angry, that means he also gets angry too.
0: Do you believe in God's anger? Do you believe God gets angry?
1: Yes, I do. <laughs> I do believe in that. No, I don't believe in that because. I believe God uh, created us and He loves us all, so I don't believe He should be angry at us. I think so, but
0: at the same time, I can't justify it.
1: I don't think He gets angry as such. I think He, you just feel sorry that that you know we we cannot be obedient enough.
0: And how do you feel about God's wrath right? personally? How do you feel?
1: I feel that he has a right to be for the way, you know, we humans behave at times. But at the same time, I think he's a God of love and the love conquers everything else.
0: What do you think God gets angry about the most?
1: Um, When we do bad things, when we aren't nice to people, when we do not follow rules. It's all the crime, the people don't pray, they don't care about things, so that is why. Oh well, the people have turned their backs against him and sinned, brought his name down, cursed him. Uh, for all the wrong we do, maybe, yes. Do you have
0: a solution to solve God's anger? If you were to think of a solution, what would it be?
1: It would be that we must all become one. We must be good people, good South Africans, good people in our religion, and we must always follow rules. Honestly, I don't
0: know. you were God for the day, how would you? like let go of your anger. How would you solve your anger?
1: I'm not God, so I can't answer that question. I would open up all the hearts of the people and to take that hate out of them and to start loving again. If I was God for the day, sure, I would just go out and pour my heart to people, eh? Yeah, that's what I'll do.
0: fascinating to hear what the average Joe thinks, hey? I know for myself, uh, when I think about evil and suffering in the world, I really want there to be an angry, just God. And then when I think about myself, I really want there to be a loving, cuddly God. How do you put those two things together? Well, this idea of the... um, of the anger of God, of the, in fact, that we're actually His enemies, it comes from Romans 5. So we're gonna look at Romans 5. A few weeks back, we were looking a little earlier in this chapter. So it's quite cool to be able to complete a thought and finish uh, chapter 5 of Romans. What an incredible letter, right? So Paul has earlier been talking to us about hope, and then he gets into the nitty-gritty of this idea that God has reason to be angry, and you're His enemies. So it starts, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. But for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As we carry on to verse 10. Um, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So it's there in black and white, right? We were his enemies. We were we were. Had nothing to expect other than his wrath. And it's in that context that it makes sense to talk about salvation. You know, Christians talk about being saved the whole time. Uh, And I guess in normal life, you'd think, well, that's a bit of an odd word to use. Salvation only makes sense. Talking about being saved only makes sense if you're in some kind of life threatening peril. Then salvation makes sense. Until you're really stoked about the fact that, or clear on the fact that you were in peril. You're very unlikely to be stoked about the fact that you were saved from something, that there was any kind of bullet you dodged. Well, Romans 5, like many other passages, is busy saying to us that the biggest problem you have is the fact that you're the enemy of a good God and you're not good. Forget about any of the other problems you're you're facing right now that are dominating your stress levels or your attention. The thing that should worry you the most is a very holy, very righteously angry God and where ye fall in that conversation. And yet what Romans 5 is telling us is that there's a way out. So we're going to stay at the end there, around verse 10, which said that we've been justified by the sacrifice of Jesus, by the blood that he shed. So how much more will we be saved from God's wrath? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Uh, You know, when we in church talk about the good things God does for us, we often jump quite quickly to um, things like, well, people used to be purposeless. uh, And so when you meet God, then you have a purpose in your life. Isn't that great? Um, Or or perhaps people used to be lonely, right? And so when you meet God, then you have companionship and connection. Isn't that great? Well, it is. Um, Sometimes we think, well, people were trapped in addiction. And so there were these sort of short-term, immediate negative consequences from those behaviors Praise God, he can come and save you from the mess you've made for yourself. Um, sometimes we talk about the fact that there is now a, you know, a, a way into a great family, that you have access to to a kind of healing, wholesome place that can start to repair perhaps depression and, and some of those sort of mental health issues. Hey, we've been saved from our mental health issues. Yay, thank you, God. Um, well, that's all really important stuff. That's all really wonderful stuff that God gives us. But I want to suggest, uh, you might have, the drift of this by now already, that that's just like splash over. That's just extra bonus stuff. That when we talk about the goodness of God, the grace of God, when, when we talk about the grace He's extended to us, the fact that He can heal my body or restore my soul or fix my relationships or get me out of addiction or do any of the other wonderful things He does in my life is like a side benefit. The big deal, the incredible thing that Jesus did was remove the wrath of God. Your biggest problem was a holy God and now he gets to be your biggest friend. You are no longer his enemy. You get to be in his family. That's just a glorious idea. And so I want us to look again at this text and go, okay, so if that's what's on the table, where does it start? It starts with the idea that it happened at just the right time. At just the right time, God extended this grace and said, okay, we're gonna find a way to sort out your, your enemy of God problem, the, the status that you had. That's interesting at a couple of levels. Uh, you know, there are layers to that. In one sense, it was just the right time that Jesus came and did all the things that he did because up until that point, there had never been a unified trading scheme across earth. So like just at a very pragmatic level, I found this quite interesting historically. If God wanted to come and start a movement across the entire world to reach as many people as possible, to let them know there's a way for you to get out of being my enemy, there was no point in human history before the Roman empire where he could feasibly have done that. That's just fascinating. A road network, a trade network, a language that everyone could have understood. That in one very pragmatic sense, it was just the earliest possible opportunity that our kind father could go, okay, I want to get everyone's attention and find a way to start a world movement to bring my lost children back home. That's very cool. There's another interesting layer to that though. It was just the right time because we had had this human experiment on the people of Israel throughout history up until that point where People who knew about God were desperately trying to sort out the rough problem themselves. And so God has said, well, this is how I am. This is how holy I am. So I'm going to paint some very clear targets and help you to try and get to me. Help, help you to give, I'm going to give you a chance to sort the rough problem out yourself. The fact that you were my enemy, I'm going, to find, I'm going to give you a way to find yourself in my good books. And despite all the advantages that he gave them, they couldn't do it. So it was just the right time as well in that we had seen this experiment be tried and fail there's no way to sort out this problem ourselves. But there's another sense in which it's just the right time. You see, I think God is always the God of just the right time. Can we just camp on this idea for a second? I'm exhausted. We've got kids at home, stresses about the future, just like you do, right? We've got all sorts of stuff that is pressing on us. And then the geese are blue. Or then the internet melted down about a really important conversation that people are freaking out about. Or then whatever else happened, the coldest snap you know, and and a time when loads of people don't have... Whatever the thing that seems to have been just the worst possible moment and yet it's landed on your lap, if I have that way of thinking, I may miss the God of just the right time. That at just the right time, when all hope seemed lost, at just the right time, when your attention was totally grabbed, at just the right time, when you had reached the end of yourself, at just the right time, when you were exhausted then God reached out and said, there's grace for this. Now I have you where I want you. Now I can pour grace into your life. God is the God of just the right time. So what potentially are you at risk of missing at this moment right now when you're tired and feeling sorry for yourself? Let's not, let's not miss it. I have a friend who I I want you to have a chance to hear from now. Um, because if we're talking about this idea that there is grace in every moment of your life, that even at the worst possible moment, it's just the right time, then he kind of embodies that perfectly. Uh, Ross and Sandra Blair are some of the most amazing people in our church. You hear often from Ross's brother, Gary, who preaches here. Ross uh, is one of the elders of our church, um, and they are busy facing the terrifying prospect, and they're in the middle of this, of fighting cancer. And um, Sandra's been diagnosed. They're in chemo right now. It's a scary time. And God has already shown all kinds of wonderful goodness to them, but hey, like there aren't guarantees. And so I want to hear from someone who's in the middle of the testimony, not at the end, not when you can look back and neatly go, oh, you see, it all worked out. There was grace. Is it possible that even in the moment where it feels like just the wrong time, you can still experience the... The grace that flows when you start to recognize what Romans 5 has been talking about, that we were enemies of his, but now we are friends of God. And there's this love that wants to pour out. So I'm going to ask Ross to tell us a little bit of their story. Uh, Bro, we're going to have a chat about the gospel, which sounds all very theological, but you use that word in a way that's kind of different from how I I hear other people use it. You you talk often about the secret weapon that you have, if we've got a church issue that we're trying to solve, or if we look at some political impasse that we think, well, maybe that can be solved somehow, or a parenting nightmare and a child like mine at the moment in outright rebellion or whatever, your response always, even if it's like a marriage issue or a sin issue or whatever, is we just need to apply the gospel here. Um, I've heard you through all of our years of friendship use that term often. Um, And as I say, it's not some empty sort of theological idea. It's like a cure-all you have that you think can solve human problems. Yeah. Um, describe what you mean when
1: you use that word and how that's kind of worked in your life. Yeah, it's kind of a difficult thing to try to explain because often I feel sort of self-conscious that as I'm explaining it, it's something that most people have heard maybe a thousand times. Um, is this idea that Jesus came to die for us on the cross. Um, and we go, okay, cool. Well, that's the ABCs of Christianity. What else is there? Um, and about 10 years ago, God revealed to me that that what this truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left the perfection of heaven to come to earth to engage in our mess and our brokenness, to experience our vulnerability, and then die on the cross in our place, taking everything that we deserve in terms of punishments and judgment so that we can have everything that he has earned in terms of his eternal goodness that existed before there was anything. And then after dying, rose again and has conquered death and that simple truth God sort of revealed to me like that is the basis for everything and and understanding that in terms of the scriptures everything in the bible is built and points towards that truth like there is no truth in scripture that isn't built on the foundation of the the gospel um, of, of that truth and so since understanding that that is it's not the abcs it's the a to z it's everything um, that it can be applied to every single situation in life. Uh, since understanding that truth, it's sort of been a habit of trying to build like the mental muscle memory of going, how do I take this truth and apply it into this situation? Um, and kind of going like, in life we, we face fear, we face insecurity, we face feeling threatened, I face pride, I face moments of illusion of grandeur and thinking more of myself than I ought to. And in every single situation Situation, no matter what it is, whether it's marriage or business or financial or whatever, I can look into what Christ did for us on the cross and go, what lesson do I learn out of what he did for me there? Um, and I, I, I'm yet to find the situation where I don't get an answer out of that. Um, and it's almost always rooted in Christ's trust in the father uh, because for him to leave the perfection of heaven, give up his rights, his privileges and leave all of those things behind, trust the Father even to the point of death, he was going, I trust that if I go there, my dad's going to take care of me and he's going to look after me. And so in life I feel threatened and I feel like I've got to defend myself and I feel like I've got to fight for my rights and I've got to do these different things and go, no, but what my Savior has shown me is that I can just trust in the Father. Um, And then the scriptures teach that because he did that to the point of death, Christ raised him up. And he's seated at the right hand of God and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And and so I can go, my future is secure, just like Christ's future was secure as he humbled himself uh, because I serve a good dad. I've got a really good dad and I don't have to fight for my rights. Uh, according to scripture, I have the right to be called a child of God. And that's the only rights I need. And that's all true in the cross. So
0: I want to ask you for examples of how that specifically plays out in your life, but I know that right now you and Sam are facing the scariest, most difficult circumstance. Um, and so let's not play around with other small examples of how this plays out. Um, you guys are busy staring down the giant of cancer. You're busy facing chemo and all the stiffness and struggle and fear. And so you're talking about not having to defend yourself, not having to be anxious, not having to solve things yourself and that you can find a solution in the gospel. And it's been this Cure all that you've been able to use in every other scenario in your life, but you would be forgiven, I think, for going, no, but this is too hard. Like, like, how do I apply the gospel to this? Can you live that way when facing something
1: as deeply personal and incredibly scary as you guys are currently facing? Yeah, look, I would say it's the only thing that has helped us to get through. Um, are now in the midst of the darkest time in our life so far. Um, it's just. I've looked desperately for something sure to hold on to Um, and I found it in knowing that my Savior came to this earth, he empathizes with my insecurity and my pain, he died on my behalf, he rose again and conquered death and he seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, And to be honest, that's all I've got. That's all I'm kind of hanging on to at the moment, Um, I know that there are people who take that truth and apply it in incredible and beautiful ways of what it means in this situation. And like, honestly, in the midst of what we're going through, I'm not there yet. Um, I haven't yet figured out what this means for our situation. I just know that it's true. Uh, that my, That's who my God is and that, that's who it reveals who my dad is. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I really, there's a lot we don't know about our circumstance and our situation. But I know that that thing is true, and what it shows me is that my dad's good. Um, and that gives me enough to get through the day. Um, yeah.
0: I would um, love to be able to live like you guys do when faced with struggle. The peace that I see coming off you guys, the gratitude that is genuine, you're actually finding a way to live in gratitude. We are so proud to even be your mates that I can be associated with. I'd think I'd probably be feeling sorry for myself. I think if I was in your shoes, I'd be saying, well, I don't deserve this. You know, I mean, no one deserves this, but like, I would. it would be very easy to fall into bitterness. In this sermon, we're talking about how we were enemies with God and and really deserved something different. And I just want you to speak to that, that, that accessing a way to live like you live starts with the terribly bad news that we're enemies with God. Uh, and I know that you are just you feel really strongly
1: about that, like what we deserve thing. Um, Just speak to us about that as we close. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be false. We have days where we feel sad and days where I feel angry um, and days where we feel down and we struggle with our circumstance. uh, But thankfully, by God's grace, I've never had to think I deserve something different. Um, Part of the gospel is understanding that what I deserve is an eternity separated from God Uh, where there's weeping and ashing on teeth and where the fire is not quenched. That's what I deserve. Everything else that isn't that is grace. Uh, And I'm so thankful. I mean, I genuinely most days just still feel thankful. I feel thankful for um, the gospel. I feel thankful for what that means for our life. I feel thankful for the security that one day, no matter what happens in this life, I'm going to see my Jesus. And that's good enough for me. Um, And so... I feel so thankful for our community that have shown the love of God to us in incredible ways to the point where I kind of want to say, like it's too much now guys, like stop all the love and the goodness, which is exactly what the gospel looks like. It's when you understand what Christ has done for you, you just go, it's too much, it's too much good, it's too much love and so we still in the midst of this are experiencing the truth and the power and the love of the gospel and I'm just, we, I would, If I could change it tomorrow, I would change it. Um, so it's not like I'm enjoying it, but I'm still thankful for what God has done for me uh, because it's, it, that, it's a truth that supersedes all the other truths.
0: I'm so grateful to my friend for sharing that with us. Um, I can't tell you how amazing it is to be able to walk alongside people who are practicing daily this experience of just living in the wonder that is possible when you start with a correct fear, exactly like John Newton was saying, that grace teaches my heart to fear. And then when you've cottoned on to how much trouble we were in, you then recognize how incredibly good the news is now. And this isn't basics, like Ross was saying. This isn't like just the ABCs. All Christian maturity, I'm, I'm so inspired to grow up and be like that, to be able to just stay, to live in the idea that if he grabbed hold of me, despite everything that should have stopped him, what else can go wrong? Do your worst, life. And you know what's amazing? Uh, you know, Ross was saying he's just sort of living in the moment, but what's amazing is that then, as I've started to recognize that his grace was enough to solve that big problem, that I was God's enemy, I could... If there's enough grace to solve that, then how much more, like Romans has been saying, is there enough grace to solve everything else? Like, let's just get the proportion right. My biggest problem was the fact that I had fallen into the hands of a holy God. If he's so good, if his grace is so incredible that he can solve that, then whatever else it is that you're stressing about is tiny in comparison to that big problem. Your biggest problem has been solved if you put your faith in Jesus. The other stuff is kid stuff for God to get you through whether he delivers you right now or tomorrow or the next day or however he chooses to do it, he's always the God of just the right time. He always has a way to work on your behalf if we're prepared to look for it. And so I wanna just take one final thought out of Romans. You don't have to go back there and read it again, but remember how Paul was saying, you know, you're probably not gonna die for someone, right? Remember Paul was saying, like, it's very unlikely you're gonna die for someone. Maybe for a really good person, you would dare to die, but it's so weird for someone to think about dying for someone else. Well, you see, there's one quite obvious exception to that. I feel like maybe Paul almost deliberately left it out. I was a little guy, uh, and my dad, in his infinite wisdom, decided to tell me a story while we were in the checkout at Macro. Um, I don't know if you, uh, you know, for for those who are listening from far away, Macro is like a big uh, Home Depot-type store, and you queue for miles to checkout, and so there's loads of people there and you buy things in bulk. So in our trolley is, in, I don't know what, like the catering five liters of chutney and the, and the 64 rolls of toilet paper or whatever. We're in the, in the checkout at Macro. And my dad thinks, no, this is the right time. See, my dad is not God, so he's not good at right time. But he decided that was the right time uh, to tell me the story. And the story goes like this. Um, there were two little kids, a very young son and a slightly older sister. The older sister was uh, was a bit of a no-it-all because she was that age, um, and the little snot younger brother was a, was a rebel. And so they, as you can imagine, a bit of a f- sort of friction relationship, but, you know, siblings are siblings. The older sister gets very ill and needs a blood transfusion. Um, and so the story goes that the parents come to the little guy and say, hey, we've discovered you're a match for your sister. Your sister's very ill. She, her life is in danger. We need a blood transfusion. If we can give her a blood transfusion, she'll, she'll be fine. Um, and so they need to take blood from you. And the little guy thinks about it for a while and says, can I have a bit of time uh, to decide whether I want to do this or not? And the parents are like, oh, okay, take your time. Uh, and he goes away and he, and he kind of agonizes over the decision. Then he comes back and he says, yeah, okay, fine, they can take my blood. So they strap him up uh, and the nurse withdraws the blood. Well done, you're so brave. Gives him the colorful st- uh, sticky plaster um, and then she leaves, and everyone else is sort of starting to leave. Um, and his dad is still there. And the little guy says, well, da- "Is everyone like just going now?" Um, and he says, "Yeah, it's it's over. It's fine." The little guy says, well, "Okay. Um, is it definitely going to save my sister's life?" Um, and he says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Uh, and so, and then he says, "Well, will you please tell her that I loved her?" And the father's like, well, "What do you what do you mean?" Um, and the little guy, it, it, it it comes out, you know, the little guy thinks he's going to die now. He's given all his blood to his sister, and so his sister gets it and he passes away. Now, um, that's a cruel story to tell your son in a public. (laughs) So, like, I'm busy standing, like, crying. This is the saddest story I've ever heard. It backfires on my dad. My dad's crying as well. We're looking like these idiots in macro, um, dealing with this, like, inopportune moment where he's chosen to tell the story. But that's the other reason you would die for someone, isn't it? As if they were family. No matter how much my children might be driving me up the wall at any one moment, it's not even a question. It's an auto yes if I have to give my life for them. You see, you may be God's enemy, but you're also His kid, which is why it is a no-brainer for Him to die for you. It's why it's a no-brainer for God. It's why it's just all that can ooze out of Him when given the opportunity is I want to save these children of mine. I want to get them back home. I designed them to be in my image. I designed them to be like me, to be with me, to do glorious stuff with me, to to obey me and trust me. And even though they're my enemies at the moment, even though they've gone astray, each one to their own way, like Isaiah said, even though that can't spare me a second thought right now, even though they have no way of getting back into my good books, and even though I am a holy God who has only one possible response to sin, which is to destroy it, if there is any way that God can die for you, of course he's going to die for you. You're his kid. And he did. And now we have this incredible good news that he shed his own blood, that he died on our behalf so that our enemy status with God could be sorted out. And if he could fix that, he can fix anything. And all we need to do, all we ever need to do is just recognize that and believe that and take ourselves off the top of the pyramid where we put ourselves, we thought we were in charge, we were in control, we were, you know, the big ones on the food chain, the only way you get yourself out of this grace is by taking back control of your life, is by deciding that in fact, like the Jewish people, you you can earn his love, you start doing that, you ruin the whole thing. Or you can work like I think many Christians work, which is essentially like a functional atheist, (laughs) Uh, that I'm in control of my life, that I'm the top of the food chain, that there's no one else higher up the food chain than me, and so I need to fight for justice for myself. I need to look out for number one. We disqualify ourselves from this experience of grace by either thinking we can earn His love or we don't need His love. No, we absolutely need forgiveness. We absolutely need mercy. We absolutely need to get back into the good books of God. It is imperative that we do, and you can't. You can't do it. And so what is left for us to do is that muscle memory that Ross was speaking about, that daily practice of putting the gospel front and center again. Whatever the time, whatever the circumstance, whatever's coming at you, the most true, most important thing about me is that my dad plucked me out of the enemy status I was in and put me into his family, forgave me, and that was the most difficult thing that he had to do for me. Everything else from there is just grace. It's just overflow. If you, like me, want to grow up into the ABCs of Christianity, if you, like me, want to get really good, really expert at this very simple idea, um, then I'd invite you to pray with me now. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you that your sacrifice was enough. Nothing more needs to be done. Nothing more can be added. Your sacrifice was enough. Your grace is sufficient. That we can be saved in the full meaning of that word. Delivered, made whole, made right, healed, repaired. That as much as we corrupted our initial design. You have recreated us. We are your masterpiece, your worksmanship, created in you, in you, Jesus Christ, to be what we were originally designed to be. And we didn't deserve that. We didn't earn that. There's no way we can get that. Thank you, God, so much. And so each one of us this morning, as we listen to this message, as we put ourselves underneath your scripture, as we've allowed this truth to have its rightful place in our attention, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would add whatever it is that only you can add to these ideas. Move this from our heads into our hearts. Move this from just a feeling into a new way of living. I'm just aware in this moment that there may be loads of reasons why this simple message has for some reason bounced off you in the past. That for whatever reason, this simple old glorious idea that we've been singing about since the 1700s when Amazing Grace was written, that somehow, for some reason, it's deflected off you up until now, that it's been opposed, that it's been crowded out. Today, we declare in Jesus' name that it is going to bear fruit. Maybe for the first time, it's going to bear fruit. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Amen.